welcome. This is the next in the history of anatomy. Uh, it's entitled Anatomical Transparency, Röntgen's Rays and the New Ways of Seeing. I'll start with a couple of quotes as I normally uh, do. This is from uh, Norbert Wiener from his The Human Use of Human Beings, Cybernetics and Society, 1968. Man makes man in his own image. I like that. Uh, from Gert Brieger, Investigative Radiology, it's a radiology journal, 1989. No specialty within medicine has been as central as radiology to the development of visual thinking and the use of new ways of seeing the body and its most fundamental cellular processes. And also, coming from The Lancet uh, by J.F.H. Daly from uh, June of 1903 on the use of the Röntgen rays in the diagnosis of pulmonary tuberculosis, a good radiograph in some respects may be said to resemble a painting by Turner. Without intuition or previous study, the one is almost as incomprehensible as the other, but as we gaze the Wealth of detail rises before our vision until finally we're able to interpret the meaning of streaks and shadows that, to the untrained eye, are meaningless. And I can say certainly when I uh, started as a resident in the late 70s, we viewed ultrasound that way. Ultrasounds were impossible to interpret. Now they're integral in radiology and in society. But we'd gather around an ultrasonographer who'd point out shadows and lines that nobody could really see. So it was really essentially uninterpretable. There's another one from uh, René Magritte in a radio interview with Jean Nurse in uh, 1965. I like this quote too, that everything we see includes another thing. We always wait to see what is hidden by what we see. The... Uh, <clears throat> the world of medicine was changing beyond the dissecting room, whereas in the 17th and 18th centuries, anatomy and the anatomists were the driving force of medical research and publication. The macroscopic body had its limits as a source of new presentable material. As the infrastructure of teaching institutions was forming, there was a, an emphasis in the hospitals on the strategy of Clinical examination as the principal exercise that could be translated effectively and reproducibly taught to practising doctors. The intricacies of these examination techniques were aimed at accurate clinical diagnosis and also at the separation of discrete patterns of medical diseases into separate groups. And that nosology of illness, as it was called, classified the clinical presentations of disease into congenital, heredofamilial, inflammatory, neoplastic or cancerous, degenerative, nutritional, adaptive, environmental, functional and infective subclasses. This was the way you were to examine patients and to think about their disorder. The separation spawned, of course, departments of pathology which relied on tissue examination and microscopic analysis, together with the new departments of microbiology, which created the beginnings of a kind of chemical and microbiological analysis of disease that themselves generated the new sciences of immunology and then molecular biology. But before this, the only way in which the interior of the body could be examined was by violent means. 
the impressions of discrete disease relied up until then on a hallowed process of clinical inspection and deduction that only quasi-accurately allowed the diagnosis of the commoner pulmonary and cardiac conditions like pneumonia and tuberculosis and heart failure. These were the techniques that were developed and adopted worldwide, which was first articulated by Berhave and then by Javier Bichat, the latter advocating the strict correlation between the symptoms and signs of disease in life with their visible pathological consequences on the organs at autopsy. Bichat wrote Traité sur les membranes, the Treatise on Membranes, in 1799, and it was a very, very influential book. It was the first of his two books produced without the aid of the microscope and which separated the body into its definitive systems and tissue types. This was before the appearance of the cell. And the other was his 1800 Recherche Physiologique sur la vie et la mort, the general anatomy applied to physiology and medicine in life and death, which connected the features of illness in life with the findings at post-mortem. At that time, the only other method of body inspection until René Lenec invented the stethoscope was the technique described by Leopold Aunbrugger in his method of percussion, which used the body like a sounding board by sharply tapping one finger over the others to discern whether what lies beneath is air or fluid. Aunbrugger had worked his way around the body listening for the dull thud sound of fluid or the strong resonant drum-like sound of a cavity full of air. It was a novel way to determine if the lungs were normal or consolidated with the secretions of pneumonia, the heart free to pump or restricted by a collection of uh, a collective effusion or the abdomen clogged with the ascites of dropsy that preceded the terminal phase of a failing heart. Actually, Alexander Monroe Secundus conducted experiments instilling sort of known quantities of different density fluids into the chest cavity, into the pericardial sac around the heart, into the abdomen and into the pelvis, so that he could determine the sensitivity of this percussion in detecting small quantities of fluid. The technique was actually praised anonymously on the 27th of August 1761 in the journal The Public Ledger, which was a London daily, and uh, that was thought penned by Oliver Goldsmith, who between 1752 and 1755 had been uh, a medical student. And despite at the time Secundus actually claiming the discovery as his own, the article correctly attributed the invention of percussion uh, to Leopold Auerbrugger. The late 19th century saw the advancement of the clinic, patterning and recapitulating the anamnestic ritual of history-taking and the meticulous rote process of patient examination. The deductive method that was able to divine the pathology of patients from their elicitable signs was centred around the teaching rounds, and these established individual surgeons and physicians as the focus of the reputation of a, a hospital, attracting external graduates who largely learned their clinical skills from a proximity to great men. And alongside these clinical engines accumulating a selected and specialised experience in the management of particular conditions were the laboratories with their emphasis now on microscopy and on the new field of microbiology, which was 
postulating the prospect of a discernible microbial cause and hence cure for every known disease. And both parts of the hospital, the preclinical and the clinical, created their own focus of research and publication. These clinical uncertainties and impressions were soon enough swept away by the latest dynamic descriptor of human anatomy, X-rays, which had been discovered almost by accident when Wilhelm Röntgen noted an object glowing across a room when a shrouded vacuum tube was subjected to an electrical current. Rather undistinguished mechanical engineering student who was working towards his PhD in experimental physics, Röntgen had been taken on as assistant to the physicist August Kunt, who was moving his laboratory and research team from Zurich to Würzburg. Röntgen's discovery came about because of his interest in other rays, the so-called cathode rays, which were able to move in a straight line across a glass vacuum sealed tube, and which had shown up as green fluorescent glow on a wall placed a few inches past the tube. That tube was originally described by Sir William Crookes, a Crookes tube, and it consisted of a cathode at one end and an anode at the other and after the air had been pumped out of it to create a vacuum, a current was passed across the plates, leading to the glow of what were referred to as cathode rays, and these, of course, subsequently were shown to be a stream of electrons, although their fluorescence could travel past the Crookes tube for only very short um, distances. Röntgen expanded upon an idea of a colleague, Philippe Lenard, who had split the tube with a deflecting piece of aluminium foil to see if some of the rays could escape the confines of the tube, and then covering his tube in cardboard so as to shield it from extraneous light, Röntgen saw the glow of a letter A on a plate several feet away from the tube and on which a student had earlier in the day dipped his finger to write the letter A in fluorescent barium platinocyanide. Now, unable to deflect these rays with magnets and prisms and with the plate fluorescing so far away from the tube whenever it was subjected to an electrical current, Röntgen realised that these more penetrative waves, ray, waves were different to either cathode rays or to light, and he called them X-rays because of their distinctive but as yet undetermined nature. Even though Lenard was ultimately awarded the Nobel Prize for his work on cathode rays, he carried on a resentful war of words with Röntgen over the discovery of these X-rays. Lenard asserted that his work had been predictive of X-rays and that Röntgen had effectively stolen his methodology. But the techniques really used by the two men were clearly different, with Röntgen using the older Crookes tube and distant fluorescent shields. Röntgen also determined the impact of different materials in blocking the passage of the new rays, and he defined the manner in which the new image represented the contrast between penetrating rays and blocked rays. Then proceeding to interpose playing cards, decks of playing cards, small books and large dusty volumes in the path of the invisible beam without any effect on the fluorescence, Röntgen finally placed his own hand in the way for the first time, seeing the outlines of the human skeleton. And after working feverishly and alone without leaving his laboratory for seven straight weeks, he defined those materials that would let the new rays pass and those that blocked them, lead and the calcium of bones appearing as dense white marks on the film. 
Immediately afterwards, he displayed to the world the first transmissible X-ray image of his wife Bertha's hand just before Christmas of 1895. In what Rinkin had with some insight initially called a skiagraph, a shadowgram, after she saw the skeletal image, Bertha nearly fainted, exclaiming that she thought she'd seen her own death. The image, actually, of Bertha's uh, hand, which shows a very large wedding ring, was taken on the 8th of November 1895. And there are many early terms for what would become known, I think, as the X-ray, and these included the iontogram, the shadowgram, the exogram, pycnoscopy, electrogram, the scotograph, the cathograph, the diagraph, the actinograph, with them eponymously titled Röntgen's Rays, Röntgenograms, Röntgenographs. Their consultant specialist interpreters were called Röntgenologists and their technicians Röntgenographers. The term skiagram, <coughs> which emphasised the shadow nature of the image, was ultimately replaced with the term X-ray by the mid-1920s and the former name was sort of thought to be a little bit too vague. So the journals that sprung up around X-rays quickly followed suit, the Great, Great Britain's Archives of Clinical Skiagraphy, changing its title to the Archives of the Röntgen Rays. That quote attributed, by the way, to Frau Röntgen can be found in Otto Glass's uh, book, uh, Biography of Röntgen from 1946, and also in uh, Betty Ann Holtzman Kevlis's uh, uh, wonderful book, Naked to the Bone, Medical Imaging in the uh, 20th Century. Following Röntgen's report to the Würzburg Physical Medical Society, Uber eine neue Art von Strahlen, as it's called, his findings were picked up by the local Wiener Press after his agent, Emil Warburg, had initially relayed them to the Berlin Physical Society. Within a week, the Kaiser himself had presented Röntgen with the Prussian Order of the Crown, second class, which was followed three days later by an editorial in the New York Times. Röntgen never took out a patent on his X-rays and donated the monies derived from his Nobel Prize, which was the first prize for physics awarded in 1901, to the University of Würzburg. He gave all the money to them. Exasperated by the constant dispute with Lenard over who should be attributed the discovery of the invisible rays, Röntgen left orders in his will for all of his manuscripts and scientific correspondence pertaining to X-rays prior to 1900 to be destroyed. After the New York Times, really, the discovery spread to the public sphere with extraordinary rapidity. His friend Franz Exner, who was the head of the Viennese Physical Institute, had presented Röntgen's work at an informal gathering with one of the audience, Ernst Lechner, telling his father, who was the editor of the Neufrie Press and who ran it on the newspaper's front page on January the 5th, 1896, again with an image of Frau Röntgen's hand on it. The story was picked up by the London's Chronicle and the New York Post and the next day and by the New York Times on January the 10th of 1896, so it was very rapidly spread. The London Times only published the news belatedly on January the 12th, after it had initially dismissed the story. 
Um, unaware of the dangers imposed by radiation, the X-ray became a sort of fairground and street corner instrument of public wonder. Chicago had coin slots where patrons could insert their hands to see real-time images of their bones and Many shoe stores around the world in the 1930s installed fluoroscopes, what were called pediscopes, so that customers could examine the bones in their feet for fittings. With the new x-rays, it was even promised that the images could peer into the soul, a romantic imagery carried along by Thomas Mann in his 1924 novel The Magic Mountain, set between the wars and the Davos tuberculosis sanatorium where inmates carted around their latest chest x-rays as personal identity cards. The protagonist of the book, Hans Kastorp, even carries around the chest x-ray image of the object of his affection, Claudia Chauchat, preferring her x-ray as a keepsake rather than a photograph. The discovery of x-ray is perhaps one way of thinking of the beginning of the modern medical era. The images it generated and those of its developmental progeny, the ultrasound, CAT scan, MRI and PET scan, are all extensions of a pictorial representation of the human body mediated internally by the mechanics of the instruments used and outwardly by our perception of their cultural significance. The brief of imaging technology through a penetrative expose of the interior was to provide a new corporeal transparency. No matter how sophisticated the modern mechanics of anatomical imagery, there is no real expectation, as in earlier representations of the human form by painting, sculpture or even poetry, that the technology can somehow transcend its medium. All imaging is mediated by its own machinery, even if it's now reduced to a pixelated reflection of reality. But a picture is more than a film or a collection of pixels. It is at least in some measure a negotiated product of its own social milieu. I think after starting work on this series, I soon enough abandoned my original idea that at this point I was going to go into each of the kind of technical and physical aspects of ultrasound, CAT scan and MRI and PET scanning technology. I think it would offer really little of value in this forum to the underlying notion that all of the current imaging, independent of its mechanisms and medium, still needs to fulfil the Renaissance roles of anatomy, namely that the representative images must visually engage and that they reproducibly reflect particular anatomical truths. The manner in which this image settles onto the retina would certainly have appealed to Leonardo, even if digital post-processing that incorporates different ways of seeing has been interposed between the reception of the input and the ultimate interpretation of the, uh, of the output. At their introduction, each new radiologic advance is always in need of some explanatory captioning. But as we get used to the new way of seeing some old part of us, we go through the stages of acceptance of the latest technology. CT and MRI scans were at one time found only in the larger institutions, not just because of cost, but as part of social policy. As they proved their worth, they developed to smaller and smaller environments and went through the stages of their acceptance. 
First, there was an accommodation of their novelty next to comforting familiarity, and then an ultimate public expectation of their necessity. And in this, there were more forces than just their clinical worth that contributed to their cultural ubiquity. Vesalius would have appreciated the second mandate of the image towards a truthful reflection of what it represents. But this too is heavily mediated, and if anatomy has changed in some fundamental way, then it is in the manner in which we now view it. The marriage between X-rays and computational mathematics resulted in the CAT scan, when a British engineer, Godfrey Hounsfield, first simulated the angulation of X-rays across a human head in 1971. The variation in attenuation of the beam translated into differences in contrast between the soft tissues and the compact cortical bone, analysing the solid and fluid parts of the brain in axial segments, just like slicing a salami. The Mark I CAT scan machine was a dedicated head scanner with a very practical purpose in mind, designed to penetrate the cranial black box and to differentiate normal tissue from traumatic blood collections and infiltrating tumours. It was only later on that the second, third and fourth generation CAT scanners examined the entire body and then used helical sweeps of probing radiation by rotating the gantry table and complex computational analyses to create three-dimensional body reconstructions. The wizardry of the mathematics has now photoshopped the image so much that it has surpassed the initial brief for radiology to imitate or to replicate human anatomy. The novel imagery has even resulted in a change in the manifestation and in the anatomical recognition of certain diseases, chronic infection and abscess collections that would settle archetypically into the subphrenic space between the liver and the diaphragm, usually after an excision of the colon or part of the stomach for cancer, for example, or which had formed in the pelvis following an appendicectomy or a hysterectomy. These were both very common problems. We were taught almost ad nauseum their most cardinal signs on clinical examination, defining them often without much imaging support for diagnosis. In the case of a subphrenic collection, the chest was tapped out with percussion, just as Auenbrugger had recommended, trying to ascertain the limits of the abscess by discerning which part of the lung nearby had collapsed. I vividly remember in the early 1970s, groups of us all perched around as I've said, that ultrasound oscilloscope watching grainy, almost uninterpretable static images that were the hallmark of these abscesses, the consultant radiologist straining even to determine if the space between the liver and the diaphragm on the side of the infection was bigger than the normal other side. And then we operated on patients to drain these collections of pus. We all had an intimate knowledge of the anatomy of the spaces outside the main what's called the general peritoneal abdominal cavity, and incisions would be made into the outer layers of the abdominal wall, carefully approaching the capsule of the chronic abscess cavity. These were like the rind of an unripe orange, and the trick was to drain all of the glutinous infective rubbish inside the abscess through this portal without contaminating the rest of the abdominal cavity. Most young surgeons in the world uh, now have never seen such a case, making it almost an obsolete operation. And today an abscess like this is diagnosed with an ultrasound or a CAT scan, treated by an image-guided drainage with a needle.
patients are immeasurably better and no longer in the main have to suffer until their complication has become such an obvious gross pathology that it actually displayed its own distorted anatomy to a clinician. The radiology, ever sensitive to the diagnosis, has converted this disease into a form frust. Likewise, in the past, the technology for imaging the pelvis was so limited and unhelpful that we would often wait for weeks to diagnose the pelvic abscess that commonly formed after the removal of a gangrenous dead appendix. In an era with less effective antibiotics, the worse the appendix, the greater the chances of some infected post-operative complication. And if patients presented after their surgery with a swinging fever that would be elevated most nights, the diagnosis of a pelvic abscess was made on clinical examination. You'd regularly feel for the mass of a collection that was expected to develop and which typically formed in the pouch between the front of the rectum and in women the back wall of the vagina. And when it was considered ripe enough, one could feel for what was called fluctuation, rather like the sort of bouncy feel of a balloon full of cream that would indent and then partially spring back to shape. When you felt that, only then would it be blindly drained, usually by poking a large pair of forceps directly into it, through the apex of the vaginal wall and letting out what was called laudable pus. This type of infection is not gone away, but the imaging has become so good at defining its presence in anatomy that it too can be managed by good radiology and a smartly deployed needle before it's ever produced any symptoms at all. The new radiology detects occult disease, leading many to seek screening body MRIs designed to preemptively find pathology before it clinically presents. And we've seen that there are small adrenal tumours that are discovered as micro-lesions. Uh, there are others, micro-tumours of the pituitary gland, occult masses in the thyroid gland, deep, benign-appearing impalpable lumps within the substance of the breast. We've become a surveyed and a monitored community, in some cases not quite knowing how best to treat what we find or what may become the new natural history of subclinical disease. The sensitivity of this imaging has created its own clinical and ethical dilemmas, redefining the very nature and even the meaning um, of disease. Indeed, I think one could say the combination of interventional radiology and endoscopic techniques has completely transformed surgery, for example, of the biliary system, as well as the management of kidney stones and coronary artery disease. Less invasive methods have shown durable success that rivals the more conventional surgery. By comparison with x-rays, the mechanics of ultrasound examination are rather dry, with the clinical applications a translation from the observations of more obscure physical phenomena. One part of ultrasound machines was a product of the exploitation of work performed by Pierre Curie and his brother Paul Jacques in 1877 when they demonstrated that external pressure applied to a cut crystal of quartz created a measurable electrical current on its surface. The quartz crystal, when subjected to an electrical current, vibrated in an effect they called piezoelectricity, and the vibrations led or lead to propagating high-frequency sound waves 
which can be converted into images as they pass through human tissue. The more dense the tissue, the more sound is reflected and the brighter it appears. Other crystals, for example, such as topaz or tourmaline, also vibrated when subjected to an electrical current and were the source of an emitting transducer. That idea was adapted for the detection of icebergs after the sinking of the Titanic in 1912. A practical application of high-frequency ultrasound for body imaging wasn't really described until the 1950s, particularly for visualisation of the fetus after the gynaecologist Alice Stewart recorded the deleterious effects of X-ray imaging of pregnant women. Actually, until that time, X-rays were commonly used to decide the gestational age of the fetus and its position, as well as to diagnose multiple pregnancies, twins, triplets and the like. So all of this is the kind of history of development of these particular things. The other addition to ultrasound dynamics exploited the effect first described by Christian Doppler of the impact of the velocity of a visible star had on its reflected colour. Now that Doppler effect, as it became known, where the time for a receiver to pick up reflected sound waves varies with the speed and direction of the object examined, that's the critical piece of physics in the ultrasonic detection of blood flow in tissues. Um, Doppler noted that in, in his uh, particular publication concerning the covered light of double stars, which was the name of the paper. But with the change in the frequency of perceived sound, it's the reason the pitch of a whistle changes between an arriving and a departing train. That little epiphany was most beautifully, rather elaborately proven by the Dutch meteorologist Christophorus Henricus Baisbalot when he placed a group of trumpeters together on a passing train and asked them to hold one note and he could easily hear the changing pitch from his vantage point on the other side of the station. He conducted that experiment to prove the Doppler effect um, using trumpeting sound in 1843. But the iconography of ultrasound has become insinuated into the modern public psyche. The 3D hyperrealism of a developing fetal face pressed up against a muscular uterine window pane, if you like, is just one cultural connector of a process accepted with such astonishing speed, in part because each technological tweak of the machinery has advanced a more realistic recognition. Uh, of the developing human form. At their inception, the different modalities of imaging had a shared stake in anatomical mimicry, and as with illustration of the human body in the Renaissance, an ambition to emulate nature. But when the new technologies, ultrasound, CAT scan, MRI, were introduced, there was a much wider medical and public acceptance than with the X-ray, and a broader appreciation of their potential use. In the case of the X-ray, by May of 1896, the Italian army was already using field X-ray machines in the Ethiopian campaign to locate bullets in their soldiers' wounds. The chest X-ray was soon widely, but not universally, adopted as the confirmatory arbiter of the diagnosis and course of the untreatable scourge, the white plague, tuberculosis. 
And in this latter case, the newfound capabilities of the radiograph in revealing the parallel destructive processes lurking in the chests of the inmates of Thomas Munn's Alpine Sanatorium in that 1924 novel, The Magic Mountain, might also have been the exemplar for a chronic illness of sorts which was spreading across the borders of Europe, a political illness. But his book was written when the value of the chest X-ray and tuberculosis was still sufficiently in question. <coughs> Physicians heavily invested in the art of clinical diagnosis still at that stage viewed X-rays with the same degree of suspicion which astronomers had of Galileo's telescope when he first drew his images of the craters of the moon. It was one thing to have the machines, but another to actually use them. The board of management of Pennsylvania's hospital had uh, forked out the money for a new X-ray machine uh, in 1896, but they were considered more of a novelty than anything else and were hardly used for nearly a decade. The original mandate of X-rays was to pare away the human structure right down to its bare bones. That's the physical nature of the absorption and deflection of the invisible rays. Beyond the indication to locate foreign bodies or in fracture management, because the soft tissues only appeared as an opaque and amorphous density under the skin, X-rays were primarily used as a bony marker of illness, many of which appeared only late in the course of particular diseases. The plain X-ray was the method of diagnosis of signs of adult maturity and of normal childhood growth, was a surrogate marker of scurvy and of rickets, the most prevalent vitamin disorders of the day. And the X-ray became then, in a sense, the social signifier of the malnourished. But as familiarity with X-rays became more universal, so were they adopted with an increasing reliance on the technology rather than being used as an occasional curiosity. And this role for the available radiology was, after all, just a restatement of the osseous primacy expressed by, expressed by anatomists stretching from Vesalius to Cheselden to know and to be familiar with those isolated bones left at the end of a thorough dissection. By the finish, after the meat had been discarded, if you will, that part left over could always be desiccated and preserved in its most elemental form, afterwards to be articulated for posterity into a dangling frame. The acquisition of bones was the principal obsession of Vesalius, and he frequently trawled the city's necropoli with friends looking for skeletal remains. Whilst visiting his Basel publisher, Johannes Operinus, in 1543 to finalise the proofs of the fabrica, Vesalius was invited to dissect the remains of Jakob Kare von Gebeile, who the city had just beheaded for bigamy and attempted murder. And as the first to rearticulate the bones, that example of a hanging articulated skeleton can still be found in the Basel Anatomische Museum. It's the oldest known articulated skeleton. The skeletal reduction that dissection had made of the human body was that same skeleton that had configured its way through innumerable paintings as a memento mori and across numberless landscapes in its danse macabre. On the other side, the physics of an MRI machine 
conversely suppresses the image of the bone instead highlighting the contrast between the soft tissues. The bones are effectively censored and appear black, the fat and the tendons and ligaments and organs all white or in varying shades of grey. I suppose although not everyone wants to be a quantum physicist, the principles of error imaging result from the alignment of subcellular protons when they're exposed to a strong magnetic field. A voltage is generated across a signal coil after radio frequency excitation and relaxation, producing a nuclear resonance with a characteristic frequency and an MR signal amplitude that's directly proportional to the number of protons in the tissue, in other words, to its density. The MRI of the convolutions and palate gradations of the brain was one of the inspirations for a 1996 exhibit which was called Views by the uh, avant-garde Czech artist Veronika Bromova who uses computer manipulation to transplant rather impersonal anatomical images onto highly emotive self-portraits. This is a beautiful image of her transplanting a, a picture of the brain onto the side of her own skull. Now, uh, most of life has moved on from analogue to digital, and anatomy is no exception. It was a logical extension to combine the physical dissection of the body with computational reconstructed digital know-how. The idea to digitise the entire human body was initiated in 1988 as the Visible Human Project at the US National Library of Medicine and coordinated in 1991 by the newly formed and evocatively entitled Centre for Human Simulation. It resulted in the first fully digitised human cadaver in 1995. The VIP female soon followed in 1996, both chosen to correlate for eternity their CAT and MRI images with close cross-sectional slices of the human body. For the purpose, both bodies after death were flown to Boulder, Colorado, and dip-frozen in blue gelatin at minus 70 degrees C, and then cut into four quarters and ultimately sliced with a precision cryogenic microtome, a fancy meat slicer, if you will. And these slices were each photographed and then scanned, a mouse used to orthogonally scroll up and down, and which can run through the depth of the transected body, spinning the fragments left by freewheeling software scalpels, around multiple geometric axes. The male was sliced at 4mm intervals to produce 1871 24-bit slices, 15 gigabytes of data that could be kept on 23 CD-ROMs. And the female was sliced into higher resolution at about 0.3mm, producing 5,189 slices, about 39 gigabytes of data. And over a thousand universities have subscribed to this male and female visible human project, or VHP. There are new software programs that have created examples with a beating heart and with vessels that actually bleed when they're cut. There's a model of the VHP pelvis, and the University of Pennsylvania has a knee model. There's also a visible Korean head, a visible Korean pelvis, and there's a man and a woman and soon there'll be a, a, a small child uh, as well. But who were these archetypal cadaveric Adam and Eve 
to be first digitised. The irony of the origins of the male VHP was certainly not lost on the journalists who chased his identity or likewise on the bioethicists who twisted themselves into a knot once his anonymity had been dispensed with. There were just enough informative clues about his age and circumstances that led to his discovery. Joseph Paul Jernigan was a 39-year-old Texan on death row for robbery and murder of an elderly man, Edward Hale, in 1981. For 12 years, Jernigan had been slated for execution by the electric chair. The Huntsman Correctional Facility, knowing the fate that Jernigan had agreed to, changed the method of his execution to death by lethal injection so that there'd be less organ damage for the waiting anatomists. And I think it's perhaps the first accommodation over how and when the condemned was to be executed specifically for the purposes of dissection and the dissectors, since the Leiden anatomist Louis de Bills had unsuccessfully petitioned Willem of Orange to have Amsterdam's condemned criminals gassed to death rather than to be hung or beheaded. Who knows whether Jernigan's guards leading him to the death chamber appreciated the sardonic irony that linked them and their execution to such a renaissance history of anatomization. The arguments against using Jernigan's body were made by the purest anatomist. Jernigan, they said, was not the digital equivalent of Bernard Siegfried Albinus's Homo Perfectus, since he'd undergone a previous append- uh, appendicectomy and a testicle excision, and he was also missing a tooth. The moralists, on the other hand, worried themselves over whether a criminal was being rewarded for a selfless act of donation and did not somehow deserve his measure of immortality. But similar disputes had been conducted well before the digital age imposed its ethical twists and turns. Comparable arguments had been proffered before that placed those dissected criminals in a liminal state somewhere between remorselessness and redemption. There was concern, too, that Jernigan, somehow by virtue of his position, had been manipulated into an ill-informed consent. By contrast to the visible man, little is known about the VHP woman, a 59-year-old Maryland housewife who died of a heart attack and whose husband acceded to her wishes to be donated to the VHP project. The only technical criticism about her would be that she's postmenopausal leading the potential in the future to add a younger premenopausal female to the VHP list. It's been argued too that the addition of a VHP child could complete the hand and fashion of VHP digital family. Whilst embracing the same mission as dissection, digital imagery uh, neither destroys the body nor leaves its disaggregated parts a transient memory. It maintains a fidelity of purpose in the tradition of any anatomical illustration, the transmission of an accurate image. The cadaver is then judged for what Catherine Waldby, an Australian communications lecturer, has described as its bio-value. That's a quantum utility that exceeds its physical mass and which can transcend how or why either the VHP male or female actually came into being. The VHP is then no more than any other example of a human model, which like an écorché, a a mannequin, a papier-mâché simulacrum or a wax mimetic, 
bears some of the hallmarks of any historical cadaveric surrogate. It's still, after all, only the semblance of a human being. When fully reconstituted, the VHP is recognisably human, but is better considered a complement to the real cadaver rather than, as some have hoped, its definitive replacement. The VHP outstrips the detritus left at the end of any open dissection because it can rebuild itself with a digital immutability that can endlessly deconstruct and reconstruct its humanity. And afterwards, there's no mess. Both photographs and digital images convey a realistic anatomy. But in one case, manipulation of that image can create a new and at times more confusing reality, whereas in the other, it's designed to dissect a higher resolution of inner or outer structural detail. After seeing his first photographs, Edgar Allan Poe was convinced that they were the new benchmark over and above the art of painting as representative of the physical truth. In an article in 1840 entitled The Daguerreotype, um, Poe wrote that, quote, if we can examine a work of ordinary art by means of a powerful microscope, all traces of resemblance to nature will disappear. But the closest scrutiny of the photographic drawing discloses only a more absolute truth, a more perfect identity of aspect of the thing represented. Unquote. It was the manner in which a photograph retained its sharpness and clarity on closer inspection that had appealed to Poe. In his eyes, close proximity to a painting was what ruined its illusion. In the early days of cinema, purists like the film director Paul Strand were horrified if the picture was in any way processed, declaring that, quote, the introduction of handwork and manipulation is merely the expression of an impotent desire uh, to paint Unquote. Strand deemed the processing, but not the process of photography, inimical to its truth-telling, referring to uh, the photography as, quote, the first and only important contribution thus far of science to the arts, unquote, uh, that comes from his book, The Seven Arts, Photography, August 1917. So the view was that you, you didn't post-process you didn't Photoshop these images. That uh, corrupted the process. Appreciation of the concrete or the abstract within an image or a painting is positional. An over-magnified scan degenerating into pixelated newsprint, just as much, let's say, as the impressionist splodges of blues and whites in a Surah landscape can become uninterpretable if you're looking at them from too close up. By complete contrast, however, most modern radiologic imagery relies upon some version of a Photoshop, and the digital X-ray is a balance between the quest for anatomical fidelity and its process distortion. Each manipulation carves out unwanted data and splines the information needed to answer a different clinical question, to construct a different kind of picture. In a technique, for example, called surface rendering, the digital image of ultrasound is defined by those pixels that are deflected off the surface of the object examined, discarding from computational analysis those which have penetrated inwards. The approach is used to define the ultrasound contours of a fetus, for example, 
or to create with the mathematics of a CAT scan a reconstructed 3D image of the inner lining of the surface of the colon, what's called virtual colonography. The reverse technique, keeping the pixels that enter the object and filtering out those weaker ones which hardly penetrate, is the method of what's called volume rendering, and that's used to differentiate the discriminatory density of normal soft tissues from infections and cancers. The algorithms it uses are more like peering into a black box. The point I'm trying to make is that these computational variations of radiologic imagery are essential to its interpretation, whereas for photography, that kind of photoshopping actually distorts the image. So these kind of comparisons have their own specific features. Such computational tricks can still communicate old ideas and the principles of contrast already established in painting are captured by the new media, even though they may be viewed in uh, different ways. The twist of a brightness dial on an ultrasound machine adjusts the reflective intensity of the echoes, the contrast knob on an MRI machine sharpening the perimeters of the contoured gyri and saucy of the brain. The grayscale palette of this machinery <coughs> is fittingly called its paintbrush program. In ordering and separating the light from shadows, the first of these mechanisms is the ultrasound's version of Caravaggio's chiaroscuro. The second manipulation of the image uh, differentiating sharper from less distinct borders is the mimicry an MRI makes of Leonardo's painting technique called sfumato that we met in an earlier uh, uh, podcast. And as we interpret digital anatomy, our decision of focus needs a processed guidance. We can move as is needed in and out from specific regions of interest to a virtual whole, just as Poe had predicted. The computers will tell us precisely how closely we can scrutinise an image of human anatomy or pathology without distorting its resolution and without disturbing its message. But for the virtual imagery of the body, even though it may follow some of the rules of painting, uh, manipulation of the image of the picture is actually critically uh, important. Nowadays, beyond the anatomy engineered and reconstructed in these images, there are also the perspectives generated by self-reflective cameras, each capable of shedding their light onto any human niche. Whether peering into the colon, stomach, the inside of joints, the bladder or the bronchial tree, the skill is in interpreting and orientating the limits of that new perception when the viewers become so constrained. That visualisation is not quite so much looking in from the outside as it is looking out from the inside. Just to make it complicated, as the media and cultural theorist Jose van Dijk has so elegantly put it, she says it's like looking from the inside in. And what were once intrusive cameras, as intrusive as any artist entering the dissecting rooms of Vesalius or Fabricius for that matter, they've become in the modern day operating suite second nature. Novel technologies provide an operative gaze that draws the wellspring of its anatomy from the living surgical theatre by bypassing the violence of conventional surgery that in the past exposed its findings to the open air. The new instruments revel in their moniker as minimally invasive technologies, 
subdued in the amount of physical damage they induce to reveal their cancers or inflamed appendixes through keyhole incisions. The success of this minimalist method has relied upon a string of concomitant scientific advances that support the surgeon with state-of-the-art 3D fibre optics and real-time high-resolution video display. Robots have replaced surgical assistants, the system set in place so that it can be run remotely, the instruments controlled with such precision that they can perform the most delicate tasks indefinitely and ergonomically free of tremor or error. The system can even override deficiencies in skill. The surgeon throughout it all like a maestro conducting a techno orchestra. The intersection of art and anatomy has been reshaped and existentially redefined both by the imposition of the new technologies and by our culture of imaging. What's happening in the darkened corners of the X-ray reading room is just a reflection of what has transpired outside its walls. In the wider world, despite the reams of digital readouts and cybertext, our passion for reading has taken a hit. Receptively seduced by the instant gratification of the image, we're a far more visual culture than ever before. The different modalities of seeing the body, radiology, endoscopy, cavitoscopy, if you will. I would say that in my earlier surgical training, it was often said that no body cavity was immune from violation if one possessed a strong enough will and an even stronger arm. By cavitoscopy, I, I mean to encompass any mechanism employing a light delivery and magnification capable of seeing into any corner of the body. The different modalities of seeing the body, radiology, endoscopy, cavitoscopy in the way I've defined it, they're all representations of human anatomy that are uh, merely markers of this change. The violence of surgery has been somewhat quelled. The body has become more readily appreciated through different, less disfiguring portals of entry that have replaced, and in the eyes of some, transcended the need for its more meticulous or even mutilating dissections. Ultrasounds, CAT scans and MRIs have become socially insinuated with a reassuring reliance and a performance expectation. But as technologies go, they're dependable almost as much for what they signify as for what they show. <laughs>